Hello and welcome to another episode of The Directors. I'm Cooper Knowlton. Once again with me today is my partner, David Alfano. And today our guest is none other than the queen of unsanctioned racing, Darcy Budworth. For those of you not familiar with Darcy and Darcy's race series, Take the Bridge, it is a series of unsanctioned races um, that started in New York, I believe around 2015 and for the last eight, nine years. Darcy's been running around the country, maybe even the world. I'm sure you've done a few international ones as well, putting on some of the coolest, like most outside the box races, unsanctioned, usually alley cat style races, um, which I've been lucky to participate in one of them out here in LA. It was a relay race, which I ran solo. So I obviously didn't do super well in that one, but it was super fun. Love the format, love the concept and super excited to have Darcy with us today. So Darcy, you can jump in and tell me if there's more background that you want to give on Take the Bridge, but we thought the best place to start or the place we were hoping to start is to have you maybe share a few war stories just from Take the Bridge. I know you've had (laughs) events where the police have been called. I know you've had just like when you're doing unsanctioned racing through the streets of major cities, I know some crazy stuff definitely happens. So Dave and I thought it'd be fun to maybe use that as a jumping off point. Okay. Sounds good. So You're right. Everything that you've said so far is pretty accurate. Um, We started our first races started in 2015. And we started as a summer series in New York. So we did a July, August and September. Maybe it was June, July, August. I don't remember now. But anyways, we did three races back to back. It was like a summer series. And that's how we started. And like the very first race was back in 2015. Unsanctioned races weren't like a hot popular thing. So it was like literally me asking a whole bunch of my friends to come and run a race over the bridge. So our races started in New York. And for the first three years, they were only in New York. And it's interesting in New York, you would think like it's such a bustling city that there'd be like a lot of cop presence and they'd be very strict or like hard on people with this kind of stuff. And technically, anytime you have one, I consider an unsanctioned race and a race is unsanctioned, which is our races. If We are not asking for permission. We don't get permits. We don't go through all those loopholes. And so I never get permits or ask for permission from anybody to do our races. And technically in New York, and I would assume it's the same in most other cities, that if you do any event that has more than 20 people, you're supposed to get a permit. And so I never do. And I never really have had issues with cops in New York ever. If anything, they'll come and say hi and talk to me. And I just kind of tell them, oh, we're doing a run. And they don't really care. As long as we're not taking over a bridge where people can't pass over the bridge, then they don't really care. They just want to make sure everybody's being safe. And I think that's normally the main idea with cops is they just want to make sure everybody's being safe. And we're not like keeping other people from like running on the paths. What's interesting is that as I've started to take these races to cities, new cities and places outside of New York, that's when I've tended to have issues with the cops or when they try to like kind of step in. And so, gosh, there's like three things I can think of. And this is like cops being involved at different phases of the race. So we threw a race for Art Basel in 2019. Like I did this, basically, it was like a bridge over to the Port of Miami. And I always scout our races a lot. And so I go a month beforehand and I ride the route and I run the route a lot. 
and I've never had any issues. We run the route the night before, everything's fine. And so the night of the race, so we have a call that's happening between everybody that's leading the race and then all the checkpoints and stuff, just so we have communication going throughout the entire race. And as we're in the middle of the race and I'm like biking with the head person, I hear from one of our checkpoints that's on the port of Miami, hey, the cops are here. They tell us that we have to move. And I just say to them, hey, we're coming. We'll be there soon. Don't worry. I'll talk to them. Don't worry about it. Whatever. And like, I just assume it's going to be like the same kind of talk we always have. And they're like, no, they're really telling us we have to move right now. They're being very forceful. <laughs> they're telling us we have to move. And so like I bike ahead and I talk to them and they're like, the Port of Miami is a public or is a private property. You're not allowed to be on here. And we can't let you be over here. And I was like, well, we have about 50 people running over this bridge in a minute. That's all going to be here in a minute. And basically, they just told us that we couldn't set foot on the island. And we had to stop them at the end of the bridge and turn them around, which is fine. And so like, I'm basically negotiating all of this in the middle of the race with the cops. And then they decide that they want to be the people that like, turn people around and they're the people that they want to they like take the markers from our checkpoint people and they start marking the runner because they want to be the checkpoint people now so um that was probably the most that i've gotten from cops in the past another thing that's happened is so i threw a race for world champs a couple years ago and the city just has a lot of things happening during that time and somehow they found out i was going to throw a race and so they called my cell phone like a week before the race. <laughs> they told me I wasn't allowed to do a race. They're like, we haven't given you any permits. You're not allowed to do a race here. And I just said to them, like, well, I don't normally get permits. It's like a very small thing. And they're like, it doesn't matter how small it is, you're not allowed to do it. And so basically, we just had to change the location of where the race is going to be. And then we had to tell everybody, like, you can't tell anybody where the race is going to be. You can't post it on social media. And so we basically had to, it was like, if you know, you know, kind of a race for that race. And come race night, nobody said anything to us. And then the last thing that I think of is we just did a race in Tahoe. We did like a trail race in Tahoe. And the parks department found out that we were going to throw a race in, in the park. And they apparently got pretty upset. Nobody called me. Nobody talked to me about it. I just heard this through the grapevine of different people. And so I have no idea if the two are connected whatsoever, but we were lined up right about to start the race and the cops like come riding in with their sirens on. <laughs> and like, instead of like, normally I just tell people like, hold, I'm just going to talk to them. Don't worry. Without me being able to do any of that, like in a split second, all of a sudden, everybody at the start line bolts and, <laughs> and they just start running. <laughs> and it's like, oh shit, the cops are here. We have to go. And I'm like, it's really not that big of a deal. They wouldn't have done anything to us, but that was their initial reaction to that situation. So that's really funny. More often than not, yes, exactly what you described. The situation. I feel like the cops probably think they're rolling up on some nefarious thing, and then when they find out that it's just like a bunch of crazy dorky runners running through the streets of the city in some like silly race, they're like, "Really? This is what we got the call for? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is nothing." We got the cops got a lot bigger fish to fry than uh been an unsanctioned race with 40 yeah. 50 people running through the streets of the city. Yeah. You know, what's so crazy is like, we just did like our biggest race to date in New York during last summer. And we had 150 women racing. And then we had at least like 200 people there cheering. And we took over this whole like block in like Soho. And 
I'm biking with the head person and we're rolling into the finish line and I just see how many people there are. I can like hear them from like a quarter mile away. And I'm like, oh my God, the cops are definitely going to come. They're definitely going to come. As I'm rolling through to the start, I see the cops like literally just drive past, not even a blink of the eye. (laughs) It's amazing what they will stop for and what they won't. You know, you just never know. Cool. I have to say, I've never been to uh, take the bridge. And it's really because my fitness is really pathetic. Only I'm running two to three miles here or there. But from the outside looking in, actually, the, the race you described specifically with 150 women, like it looks sick from outside looking in. And I know one of the things we wanted to touch upon today was you've created this really cool series. It looks cool from the outside. People follow it. How are you? You're going into a new city and we could talk about like when you choose to go, but the sponsorship deal. Are brands reaching out to you? Are you going into a new city going like, hey, Nike, Brooks, Loop in Austin? I'm just sort of throwing out random. Or is it a little bit of like a collaborative process? It's kind of a little bit of both. So what normally happens is at the beginning of the year, I have like a list of places that I want to go to. And it's an evolving list, whatever. But like, it's just an idea of like where we'd like to go in the coming year. And It's a combination of like, I have sponsors that are reaching out to me and saying, or brands that are reaching out to me saying like, Hey, we'd want to have partnership with you. And so basically what I say to them is like, Hey, here's a list of all the cities I'm interested in going to this year. If there's any kind of possibility where we collaborate, great, like let's do it. And so they can kind of pick from that list and be like, we'd love to do these cities or whatever. Right. And then what also kind of happens sometimes is they'll be like, yeah, like we'd love these cities. We also were thinking maybe this city, how would you feel about this city? And so it's a little bit of both. And then what also happens is that whatever cities, these partnerships that I'm talking to, these brands that I'm talking to, any of these cities that don't kind of get matched up right away, that's when I start going to brands and asking them for help. So a great example of that is our Nashville race that we did this past year. And so I knew the owners of the store and they'd been talking to me ever since they were starting to build their store. And they had this idea of within the first year of them being open, they'd really love to throw a take the bridge race. I knew them. We had mutual friends that really connected us and they just felt like they were really building community there. And so it was really important for me to throw a race there. Nobody was kind of interested in that city. So I just ended up, we ended up talking to Nike and just telling them like, hey, this is something we're interested in. And they snatched it up right away. One of the, so one of the things that's kind of similar between our business and your business is that you put on races all over the place and we've kind of done that too, which is most traditional race management companies are putting on races just in the, the Twin Cities or just in Southern California. And we, or for better or worse, kind of bop around the country and put on things in different places. I'm wondering if you have figured out sort of, because something that we're th- we think a lot about is like, why our races sometimes work really well in some places and why they don't work as well in other places. Like New York was where we started generally when we do things in New York, it works really well. But we have done things in Austin, for example, that have kind of fallen kind of flat and like we've struggled. Like, what is that? Is it not having the right partner? Like, I'm wondering how you think about when you're going into a new place or you're putting on a new event or just kind of having done this for so long. Like, why is there a formula that you're sort of thinking about? Or do you think that like, this concept does work in better, like why it works better in other places, in some places than other places. Yeah. So it's like a medley of things that help make sure that a race is going to be successful. So I travel quite a bit for work as it is for my day job. And so while I'm traveling for work, a lot of times I'll go and run with different run groups in different cities and 
I feel like I can pick up pretty quickly, like the vibe of the city and like how big the running community is in that city. And so that kind of helps to inform me what cities I want to go to in the future. On Instagram, you see different cities popping up at different times as well and having like their moments. That's something all of those things combined kind of helped me to say, yes, this city is a city I want to go to or whatever, right? Or like if they have really amazing, which I also say that too. Things that I really have to work on and think about if I want the race to succeed is it's basically the partnerships that we are able to create and activate. I feel like the brands that I work with, it's really important that they're working with me and that they help me in like any of their connections. Do they have pro athletes that want to come out and do the race that they can also like spread the word or whatever, right? And so like the brands that I work with, it's just really important that it's not just me throwing this race, but we're doing it together and we're like activating community together with our combined resources, right? The other thing and something that I think is actually the most important is the local community that we connect with. And so in most cities, we have like a host run crew and that host run crew, I really kind of work with in making this race their race, right? And so like, I meet with them from the very beginning and I say, hey, like, what do you think your city needs for a race? Like, where are some of like the really fun areas or what are the areas that the locals race in or run in all the time that they like would like to create a race in or something? And sometimes it's not like the downtown, but the small little neighborhood over here that everybody tends to run in that's a little bit less known. And so it's that partnership. And if we have a really strong partnership, that's normally what helps to create a successful race. Well, I'll say that partnership is that this run community needs to have a really strong following and they need to have at least two to 300 people that are part of their group that show up to workouts on a regular basis. And it can't just be the city has this one run crew and that's it. There has to be a lot of other run crews in addition to this one run crew in that one city. So it can't just be like, oh, we have one run crew in our city and we have a bridge. We think it'll be successful, like local run shop. No, it's like a combination of all these things. And there has to be like a really strong community there at the same time. And then the other thing I would also think is, is there an appetite for unsanctioned races and like something that's a little abnormal in that city? And what's funny is I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I've thrown a number of races in my hometown just because I love Portland. And Portland has a really strong running community. They have a Portland is known for running. But we have so hard to get turnout there. And I think it's just that people are so like they're track runners there, you know, (laughs) so they're not the appetite for unsanctioned is not as strong in Portland, I would think. Yeah, I I feel like we've quickly learned from doing some of the more track and community centric events in other cities that you have to have that community partner. But it's also interesting, like New York City, I feel like all of the teams will come together to participate, especially in a race like yours, whereas in some other cities, it's just so segmented and it's almost like, oh, if they're going, then I'm not going. Isn't that an interesting concept? I feel like one of the points of the races is to bring all these different communities together, all these different crews together. And so something that I used to do, and I still do it, but not to the same extent that I used to, but it was really important to me when I first started these races that I would go and meet all the different run leaders in the city and run with all of their groups. And I'd say to each of them, we want you to be here. Even though this group is hosting, we still want you to be here. And like, if that means maybe I give your crew like two free spots to make sure that you guys have an initiative to come. But like, 
it's funny that just because one crew is hosting that maybe others don't want to come and like the whole idea is that we're all coming together for this. Yeah, no, it's, we've done some events in the summer community track events, and we've heard certain run clubs say like, oh, it's so nice to be at the same location as this group where we never see each other. And it's, and it is definitely foreign being in the New York City area, but you'll partner potentially with a run group or maybe a brand. And then the event is over. I'm curious when you reflect back on the event, because for us, typically it's numbers. Like when we're doing events, we're trying, you know, the more people you get out to the event, the more hype and excitement and noise. But when you're looking back on your event, is it like, oh, that was a successful event because we had 150 people? Or like, are there other things within that event that make you say to yourself, all right, I'm definitely going back to that city next year outside of the fact that like, I feel like a 40 person event can crush. So I'm just curious, like where your mind goes with that. One, I definitely think numbers has a big part in that, right? And so that national race that I told you, typically when we go to a new city, I really don't expect there to be more than like 50 or so people at the start line just because it's like something new and you kind of have to educate people. And so I always have to think about that when we go to new smaller cities that aren't New York or LA that like, you know, it's going to be a little bit smaller at first and you kind of have to build up that community or that knowledge of what an unsanctioned race is. We opened up the registration for Nashville and it sold out within seconds. And then like, we decided to expand the field and then that sold out within seconds. And then we expanded the field again. <laughs> and so like we ended up having over a hundred runners at that race, which is like a New York sized field. And so my thought with that is like, one, do we have the numbers? How quickly did it sell out? Like what was the appetite for it from the very beginning? Was it something where we had to like constantly talk to people and like get people to sign up? Or was it just like right away, everybody signed up? There's that idea. The other thing I think of is what kind of athletes were at our race. And I think it's important that we have the really fast runners, but we also have like the slower runners and we have a wide range of runners that are running. And then also did community show up? So like not only the people that ran, but were there a lot of people that weren't running that showed up because they wanted to be a part of the night that they wanted to come and celebrate and cheer in addition, you know? So like we could have a smaller race, but like a ton of people show up to cheer and that's a successful race for me too. Totally. So kind of expanding on that point a little bit, one of the things that we've run into, we've encountered with Trials and Miles is, you know, I think we get a lot of people who look at our events and say, oh, those events are just for fast people. And and generally they're not. We try at least to make them that they're inclusive. So if you're a 14 minute runner or you're even want to walk the race, like there's a, there is a space for you, but I'm wondering, I know you've had similar issues with take the bridge. I'm, I'm sure, especially when it first started that it was like, oh, that's just for like elite fast people. And, and I'm wondering sort of how you've curated that experience, how you thought about making an event that speaks to the elite. So it's exciting for the elites, but it's also something that feels like it's approachable. And if you are a 14 minute per mile runner or someone who's going to be walking, how you feel like you're included and taking care of both those communities at the same time. So that's something like a few years ago when we first started going outside of New York. One, I think it's interesting in New York, it's less of a problem. At least I'll say that with men, it's less of a problem with men. But as we've gone to cities outside of New York, it's been more of something that we have to constantly be thinking of. And so in doing that, part of it is the people that we partner with and also highlighting different runners that might not be the fastest runners and showing that they're also running the race. And I think how it really shows up is 
I reach out to a lot of different people, some crews that are a little bit slower, runners that are a little bit slower and just let them know like, hey, I still want you to come. I get messages all the time in our Instagram of like, I don't think I'm fast enough. Here's the pace that I'm going to run. And I no, please come. We want you to come. So it's the legwork ahead of time of just letting people know and saying that over and over again. And even like legit saying it in our Instagram post when we announce the race. And the other part is just how the races show up afterwards and like making sure that we're highlighting all levels of runners afterwards as well and showing and highlighting those runners at all different paces. And I think what's interesting is that the photos that get taken at our races, the photographers are just so talented that I think no matter what, you're going to look like a badass in our race and then you're going to look like really fucking fast. But like those pictures can be of like the back of the pack or the front of the pack and you would never know because they all look fucking badass, right? I think the other thing that recently we've done that has helped us out a lot is that in the past two years, we've started throwing women's only races. And in those women only races, I specifically say over and over again, if you've ever been intimidated to run our races, if you've ever been scared that you weren't fast enough or whatever, that this wasn't a space for you, this is the race for you. We want everybody to come, every single kind of runner, we want you guys to be there. And we have to like say that over and over and over again. And when we do that, I find, especially in the women's only race, when we create an event just for them, all these people come out of the woodworks that are like so interested to sign up. And what happens is they come and do the women's only race and they're like, oh my God, this is so fun. And like, there is space for me here. And then they start shining up, signing up for all of our other races as well. The women's only races. I had a friend that I went to law school with. I mean, she's a runner, obviously, and it's gotten more and more into it. But I was like really surprised. She like messaged me the next day after she did it being like, oh, have you heard of Take the Bridge? And I just did this one. Right? And I was like, yeah, like what? You're doing a Take the Bridge right <laughs> But but I think you did a great job of curating this space that someone who is not someone who you would typically see at a trials of miles or a take the bridge race, like felt really like this is a safe space for me to like do an unsanctioned race at night. And so, yeah, it was super, super cool to see that. Speaking of kind of that type of unconventional race formats, something that we've messaged about previously that you did, I know you did it in Austin and I'm curious to know what your thoughts on it were. And if you plan to do more of it was the hybrid bike running race where you had a bike race kind of in the beginning or at the end, and then you had a running race after. And I've thought a lot about, cause I think like if you're getting all these people out there, they're different types of communities. They're weirdly bikers and runners as similar as we are. We don't intersect that much. And, but it's kind of the same concept, right? You're throwing a race, you're having people go through these streets might as well do them in the same place. So curious about like how that worked and uh, if there are plans to do more of it and just kind of what your thoughts are on that format. So we did that in Austin. And so I have this ongoing partnership with this group called Breakfast Club in Austin. And that's who I work with in throwing our Austin. So in Austin only, we have bike races. And so it started off that night that we did basically bike races in the afternoon, late afternoon, early evening. And then after that, we did a running race. And so in Austin, just east of downtown, there's this bridge called the Montopolis Bridge. And it's about half a mile long. And what we did for the bike races is that we did these, they're 200 meter sprints, basically. And so you start at one end and you do the 200 meter sprint and it's bracket style. So it's one against one, right? And so we pair everybody up, you do your race, whoever. And basically what you do is you clip in, somebody holds onto your bike and we three, two, one, go. 
you sprint for 200 meters and then whoever wins moves on to the next bracket. It's more of a drag race than like yeah, anything else. It's like a drag race for biking. And so the nice thing is that contains this race just on the bridge. So all of this activity is happening right on the bridge. And so like, this is a pedestrian only bridge. And so what we see is like all sides of the bridge of the bridge is lined with people. Now we have like a DJ and we have an announcer and it's like a whole setup. We have lights that we bring in. It's a whole setup. Then we have beer. And so like, it's like a party on the bridge. And so when we did this the very first time, we did the bike race and the running race together. And one, I'll agree with you. It's interesting. Like Austin definitely has a really strong running community, but for some reason, it's not translating over to the unsanctioned races. And I'll say the loop throws these unsanctioned races all the time now. And like, they also did the driveway series. They're still doing these races. I'd love to see their numbers. But for me, I'm not seeing a lot of people come out to our races when I do races in Austin, right? Especially for how many people there are running. And so there's two things that happened with that. It was the first time we'd ever done a bike race. It wasn't as developed as it is now, right? Like we've now done like three of these bike races and there's a whole community that comes out now and like the entire bridge gets lined with people and it's like so fun. But when we did it the first time, not as many people, it was raining that night. It was like not as great of a turnout because we were building something that was still new. And then we added on the running race. And so the bike race is all contained on this bridge. And then the running race, we had it where like it started and finished on the Metropolis, but it like hit all these other checkpoints and then came back. Right. And so there was like a little lag of energy during that time where they started and finished. And so the cyclists that had just run were all there partying for the start of the race. But by the time the race had finished, they kind of lost interest and left. What I think of when I think about these bike and run races is that the person that did it well and successful was the Red Hook Crit, was David Tremble with the Red Hook Crit. And the reason why is because he had a very contained small course. It was a 1K course in like this closed off contained area. So you have all these people gathered to watch the bike race and they're doing preliminaries all day long into the evening. And so one, there's all this energy being built up throughout the day for the bike race. And then like literally you have all these preliminary heats happening. And then right before the final bike race happens, they have a running race on the course. So you have all these people that are waiting for the bike race to happen. So you have all this energy from them and they run the course and you get all this energy and it's like very electric, I think. And then you do the bike race. So I would wonder how the loop did right there. So the driveway series that the loop did is that they tagged onto. So there's a driveway series, a crit that happens in Austin. That's like every Thursday night. And I'm not sure if the loop did it before or after their races, but I'd love to see how successful it was. You know, so many things to unpack from that last two minutes. And first of all, I don't know if you know this, Cooper is a huge Red Hook Crit fan. I, I hear the Red Hook Crit reference every two to three months when we're thinking of a new concept. I think that bracket style in-person format is brilliant. I mean, I I was telling Cooper, I brought my son to a, a monster truck show the other night, not expecting anything. It was like they compete in this first thing. And then you can see that people that advance compete in this next thing. And I'm like, why do we not have running events where you can, over a 90 minute period, you can watch like 20 people go down to two or uh, time doesn't matter. What I love so much about your races is that time doesn't matter. And there's this obsession. Every race has to be about 
being on a certified course. It's got to be about running a PR. And like the essence of racing is just not there. So I like, there's a lot of things you said there and I'm, I'm, I'm scatterbrained right now, but like the elimination thing, awesome. Crit style, awesome. We're planning an event here in New Jersey later this summer. And it's like a mile, but we're not doing a mile because a mile's born. You can't get to see everything. We're shortening the course. So you can see them multiple times. And I just think that there needs to be mm-hmm. that. And I, and I do think it's the future of like, whether it's sanctioned or unsanctioned, like on the roads or trails specifically. So I don't know, take that in any direction or Cooper chime in, but I love yeah. it. I mean, so many things you said there are so cool. And I think that that event sounds awesome. I'm curious though, if it sounds like the Austin race was very, um, I, one of the things too, just to backtrack a bit is I, I love to just like hearing your process, how it kind of like, how it's evolved and how it didn't quite work the first time. And the changes you made is like really cool. And I think we certainly are like always thinking about that too, in terms of like how we can trial and error is a lot of what we do, but I'm curious, it does sound like the Austin event is very specific to the very unique location that you described in Austin. And I'm wondering if you have thought about bringing a version of that to LA, New York, Nashville, some of these other cities that you've had successful events in and whether that's in the works, because I do think that format is something just so unique and so cool and creates a really, really unique energy. It's interesting. So a couple of things. One, Cooper, I don't know if you realize this, um, but at one point I did help David Trimble and I directed the 5K for, that was one year. So I'm friends with David Trimble and there was one year where Pavel, who was the race director for the 5K, couldn't do it. And so I directed the 5K rhythm one year. And I will tell you, I've taken so many learnings from that one year and have applied it to like how I do races now and how I interact with like our brands and what I ask for and things like that. So all coming together all makes all more and more. <laughs> I really do love there's just something about creating something new and watching it grow from some from like nothing to something big is so exciting. And I really love being a part of something like that. And so I really have found a lot of fun in doing our bike races. The guys from Breakfast Club were just in LA. And so we were already talking about and looking at different places in LA that we could do it. I think what we're going to have to drop in like expectations if we're going to do it in other cities is like the fact that we'd have to do it over a bridge. So like, what are other places that we could do it over? Right. What I will say is that when we were coming up with the concept for our race, I actually got it from my friend Chris, who my friend Chris is part of this group in New York called, I think they're the raccoons or whatever, but they, are the ones that do like the fixie single speed races in Prospect Park in the evenings. And so during COVID, him and his friends were doing these 200 meter sprints in Central Park when the park was like completely empty. I took that idea and I was like, Chris, do you mind if we do this over in Austin? And he gave me all of his tips and all of his things to do. And then we built it from there. And so since then, he's like, hey, Darcy, we need to bring this back to New York now. So there's definitely an interest in our idea is that we are still going to do them in Austin, but we'd love to have one in LA and then one in New York this year too. I feel like build up the bike races, make them really have a good following, and then maybe we'll add back in the running. Cool. So kind of to that point, I'm wondering if you have any bucket list location cities, like pie in the sky ideas for races and events that you're working on, would love to do. Maybe it's not this year, but just curious, like what really excites you and inspires you in the future, the next iteration of Take the Bridge? 
So something that's kind of been on my mind since COVID. So during COVID, I did this thing called Your City, Your Bridge. And it was basically like you could apply to have it take the bridge in your city. And then I chose like 10 different cities and I coached leaders, like whoever had applied, I coached them through how to throw a take the bridge race. And I like mailed them a box of supplies. And then we all be on a call together as they threw the race in their city. And I wasn't there for any of them. So when I did that, there was a number of cities internationally that we went to. And so one of them was Australia. That's just been in the back of my list of like, I really want to go to Australia. There's so many like beautiful bridges there. And I just like, I really want to go there in person and throw a race. Like that would be like a really amazing thing. We've thrown one race in London, but I something this year is that I really want to do some more international races this year. And the last thing I'll say, I've had this like idea of a race. I haven't ever said this on a podcast, this idea of a race. So, okay. (laughs) I've always said that when I'm done throwing take the bridge races, there's one race that I want to do to like mic drop (laughs) kind of a situation. And my idea is that I really want to do a race over the Verrazano Bridge, but the Verrazano Bridge is not open to pedestrians. So the idea is that it would be invite only and maybe we invite like 10 of the fastest people in New York and we just tell them you're going to do a race with nine other really fast people in New York. We can't tell you where it's going to happen. We're going to pick you up at two in the morning. You have to be ready to go at two. And we have like however many lanes there are on the Verrazano Bridge, that's how many cars we have. And we just drive over the Verrazano Bridge. We turn around, we drive back, we stop and all the cars stop. And in a split second, everybody has to get out and line up on the bridge and we race over the bridge and like people are contenting from the cars and the cars are slowly driving behind the people. <laughs> and then we get to the other side. Certain people win. We have the finish line, whatever. And then you have to get right back into the cars and we go and we don't tell anybody we're going to do this race. Like nobody knows. And then you wake up in the morning and it's like all over social media that we've just done this race over the Verrazano Bridge. I love it. That. I can really <laughs> in slow-mo cinematic like entrance as they get out of the cars. And that's sweet. That's sweet. Yeah. Cool. Um, I have this guy, this person that's like the head of my timing. His name is Stephen Allen Wilson. And he's like, I will have these huge grandiose ideas. And sometimes he kind of helps me to come back to reality of like, how are we going to make sure that this is safe? And how are we going to make sure that we don't get arrested? <laughs> <laughs> or things like that. When I bring this idea up to him, he was like, how are we going to, because this bridge is like a Coast Guard bridge. Because there's like a base on the other side of, over in Staten Island, on the other side of this bridge, it's like a Coast Guard bridge. And so he's like, how are we going to make sure that when we all finish on the other side of the bridge, that there's not like cops that are waiting for us, that are waiting to take us to jail? <laughs> things to think about. Oh, it might it might be worth it. Though. I feel like it might be worth it, right? <laughs> Jail for that. I can't imagine. They keep you for too long. So uh, I'm super super curious, and I know we've taken up so much of your time already. I I know you you were bopping from your full time job into this podcast. And, you know, Cooper and I started Trials and Miles very much as a side hustle, and we've since were involved in some capacity in our previous world, but this has become really full time. How do you balance it? And I guess like, do the economics work for the racing for you to continue to be incentivized to do them and travel? Or is it more like, 
I get to travel all over the country and world. And this is like, I'm living my best life kind of thing. I know you could take that in a lot of different directions, but. So I'll start this with one thing. In 2019, so I do interior design architecture as my full-time job. And I quit my job in 2019. And for six months, I solely worked on Take the Bridge. I think that during that time, it became very clear to me that I lost my love for it during that year because the economics of it were so important to me and trying to make any kind of a profit from it were so important and the stakes were so high. It made it so that I like lost my love for it for a split second. And I got a job at the end of 2019 and I've been with this company since then. And what I've taken from that is that I just don't think there's ever a world where I would want to do Take the Bridge exclusively. And the reasoning behind that is I've always thought of Take the Bridge as almost my community service to the running community. I love doing these races and they bring me so much joy, not because of any kind of money I get from it, but because of what happens on race night and how you see all these different people come together, all the different experiences from the very head of the path to the very end of the path that you see from these runners. So I bike alongside with the front pack. And like, I see these, it's so interesting to me to see all these different runners working together to get through the race, even at the front of the pack, they're all working together when you think that they'd be like, trying to throw people off or whatever you don't. So that's inspiring. And then what sometimes happens is I'll finish the race with them. And then I'll go back on the course and I'll bike with like the back of the pack or the middle of the pack. And so I see stories like that all along the way. And then you see these people that have lost their love for the sport of running, where like this race kind of helps to bring that back for them. Right. And so there's something about me being in service of other people and just making this really about the community that makes it worth it to me. That is the reason I keep doing it. The economics of it, to be honest, there's not much money to be made (laughs) from throwing races. The expenses, honestly, like unsanctioned races, and you think of it and you're like, what could cost so much money? Really? What costs so much money is like the fact that we don't have permits means that we need to have a home base that we can start and finish from that is a secure place that we can have. So like if you're having all these people gather outside of a run store or a private event space, it's okay because like you're renting that space, right? And so like that takes up a cost, but then you know, like there's a party afterwards. And so like the food and the DJ and like anything that goes along with that's a part that's also something, all the equipment that we use during the race, that's an expense. And then the major expense is all the travel that I do, either beforehand and afterwards. And like, I have to be there for a full week to really be a part of the community and bringing all the excitement to the city that week. Right. And so all of that adds up. And so we formatted the registration for our races so that I try to get all of these expenses that I just explained to you guys covered by a brand. And if we're doing a race with a brand sponsorship, what I try to do is that the head leaders that are on my team that are helping out for that race, if the race is sponsored, I want to pay them for doing the race because we're doing this in partnership with a brand. So I do consider certain people consultants of mine. And so I do want to make sure that they're getting paid for their time and all of their energy and efforts that they put towards this. Besides all of the expenses and everything, what ends up happening is registration. Honestly, I try to keep registration as low as possible. 
And the idea is that you want to keep it somewhat low so that people want to sign up and there's no kind of like monetary value that's keeping them from being a part of the community event. But you also want to have it high enough where people don't think, well, I don't know if I really want to go. I only spent $10. You're still going to have a high turnout rate as a result. But what I do with all that money, if we've gotten a brand to sponsor it and taking care of all the expenses, then I take all of that registration fee and I give it back to the runners in form of the prize money. And if it so happens, there's certain races where we don't have sponsorships. And so what ends up happening is like normally half the registration fee goes to covering the expenses and then the other half goes to the prizes. I'd love to say I make a ton of money off of this. To be honest, what I try to do is that towards the end of the year that I just even out. (laughs) So I'm not paying any money, but I'm also typically not taking any money in. And how that normally looks with the evening out is that there's always like maybe a couple of races every year that I think of as like pro bono races where maybe I don't get a sponsor, but I know that that city is like an up and coming city and like, or they are just like, they have a really good community and I really want to support that community. So I'm just going to go and cover the cost with some funds that we got from the last race. I really appreciate you sharing all of that and just being super transparent. That was as someone who's followed your races for years. And I think a lot of people listening to this will be really interested in, I mean, this is really your story. It's kind of making me like reflect a little bit more on, because I think as a business, you know, obviously you don't want to lose money. You need to be in the green in some capacity, but it's um, what you're doing is incredible. And I'm sure changing a lot of runners perspectives. There's no doubt, though, that when you are thinking about the economics of the event, it changes your relationship with the event. I mean, I think some of the early events that we threw, we weren't thinking at all. We just were like, this is super fun. We just want to be throwing a party. And you are. When you're the race director, you are kind of throwing a party in many ways. And when you are thinking about the bottom line, it changes. It changes how you approach the whole event. It changes your experience at the end of the day. You could throw an awesome event. And if you like lose a little money and it's your business, that really changes your relationship with the whole day. So yeah, I think that, yeah, I I echo what Dave said. I appreciate all the transparency transparency on that point. One other thing I would just love to say out loud, and this is something where like, I gained so much insight for that one race that I helped the Red Hook Crit 5k race that I did with David Tremble is an insight is into the funding and how much it costs to throw a race or to organize a race and then getting money from sponsors. And before that time, I had no gauge as to like how much money I could consider realistic to ask from brands and like the amount of money that he told me I need to raise from brands. I was like, there's no way. How can <laughs> you have to just have the cojones to ask for that kind of money? I would love to be more and more transparent about this kind of stuff because if other people are going to continue doing this after us, you're not going to know unless somebody tells you and you're not going to know your worth unless somebody else shows you. And brands will try to give you as little money as possible. And you really have to stand up for yourself for how much you're worth. I think it's really important to be having these kind of conversations all the time. Totally. It's so hard. Dave and I have been doing this for a number of years. You've been doing this for a while. Like, it's still really hard. It's those brand conversations. It's actually one of the few things Dave and I have have a really great working relationship. And it's honestly one of the few things that we actually like actively have gotten in fights over is like how much we should be asking from the brand partner. Like, is it $5,000? Is it $20,000? Like, who knows? Sometimes you're just throwing out a number. You're like, what is our value? How much is this worth to them? It's really hard 
I don't know if it gets any easier. You're always, every brand is telling you that their their budget cuts and their budgets are tight. You're always kind of hearing the same thing, but yeah, knowing your value, knowing your worth in any context is really tricky, especially in this world, for whatever reason, it feels like it's kind of a black box and rumors that this other race got X number of dollars from this brand. And you're like, oh, well, if they're getting that, we should be getting that. And then it's really hard. It's really hard. But yeah, I think that's a great point to bring up. Darcy, again, just last question I have for you. You mentioned a number of times that like the bike world doesn't inspire you. You mentioned David Tremble a number of times too. Just kind of curious if there's other, we've been asking this question at the end, just kind of other event directors that you'd be curious if we're doing this format moving forward, anyone else that you'd be interested in hearing a version of this conversation with or people that you really look to who are doing interesting stuff, pushing the boundaries both inside and outside of running of like what racing can look like. Would love to hear if anyone comes to mind. Yeah. There's two people that come to mind and they're doing completely different things. But, and I don't know if you've already talked to him because I think he's so well known in our community, but um, Jesse from Sound Running and what he's doing to like, he almost is making track hip again. <laughs> That's what it feels like to me. What I also think of is because I feel like this is so under the radar. So unless you're living in LA, I feel like nobody's really hearing about this race. But my friend Adam Talon helped me with our very first unsanctioned trail race in 2021. And then afterwards, he was like, I think I'm going to do my own race. And I'm like, go right ahead. I want to see what you're into. And he comes from the bike community. And so he is like a big mountain biker, goes and does all these races on the trails with his mountain bike. And so he is throwing, he throws all these unsanctioned trail races in LA. And we did one. You did one? Yeah, we did. We were there. We were there together. One of them. I think one of the first ones that was he that threw. The, that was like the very first one. I think, I think it was the first one I did it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, yeah. He's, I, super, he's super cool. It's been very hard for me to get to them, but he's awesome. The events that they're doing are so cool. I think the thing that I really appreciate about his races. So he does these unsanctioned trail races. So it's the same kind of format as my trail race, where are my races, where you show up and there's a number of checkpoints that you have to hit. I think what's so interesting about the trails versus the road is like, you could have the shortest route, but the elevation might be so much harder that the shortness actually doesn't help you at all. And so you really have to know the, the geography of the trails that you're about to hit so that you your route is the most is the smartest. So the shortest is not always the smartest of the routes here. What I think about his races that I love being a part of is they're always pretty small. It's like a community. He has like a little WhatsApp group for everybody that's running so everybody can kind of talk to one another before and after the race. Hey, can somebody bring a speaker? We're going to have pizza, any like things that you need, whatever. It's so nice. Like it just feels like a community. But the thing about his races that I love is that they are really fucking hard. <laughs> he does not like babying anybody. But at the same time, you get a long, a wide range of people that come and you can choose whether you want to do the full race and hit all the checkpoints or if you just want to come and do a couple of checkpoints and everybody's welcome to do however much of the race that you want to do. And like just an idea of like how hard they are. He just did a hundred mile race that was all over all of LA. That's like the longest he'll ever do. But I've done both a 12-mile race with him that was 12 miles and 4,000 feet of climbing in 12 miles. And then there's like, I did another race where it was 26 miles. And I did this right before my ultra. So I used it as like a training for my ultra. But it was like basically you had a hub and then you had all these different checkpoints. And so like you'd go out to a checkpoint and you have to come back to the hub and go out to the checkpoint and come back to the hub. So like the hub felt like 
where you'd come back and get all of your new goos or whatever fuel that you needed, got some more water and then went back out again. And I'll say that like, come like the fourth checkpoint, I was like, I'm not fucking going out again. I'm not doing like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So all of that, I just think is so interesting with his races. Totally. He also does a great job with storytelling. Like he did, there's like a big narrative beforehand about the you know unique nature of the trail system and that that specific area but he's not afraid to do things that are on like trails that aren't really trails first one i was like a former trail there was no it was crazy i think my gps like i put it in my watch for gps and then i get there and i'm like this isn't even a trail like what We'll have to we'll have to get Adam on at some point. But thank you so much for this. This was awesome. Exceeded expectations. I knew it would. So appreciate your time and looking forward to the next Take the Bridge in LA. Hopefully there's one soon so I can I have an excuse to get back into shape. So I'm working on something. I'll just shout it out because we're gonna make it come to to happen. Is that I've been telling all these people that I want to do this race, an all women's trail race out here in LA. So I'm hoping to do that in the spring of this year. Love it. Well, keep us posted. We'll end there. And uh, yeah, thank you. Okay.